Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Slack is a messaging app that brings together all your team's communication in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Well, hello, everybody. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss four common credit card pitfalls and how you can avoid them. We'll also answer your question about keeping things equal with the kiddos. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers. And today we have a guest in the studio to help us. Hello. That's Jason Moser. You might recognize him from such iconic episodes <laughs> as the Oreo tasting. <laughs> and also you come on in the past to talk about stocks and also kids and money. I have. I have. I've been very fortunate to be welcomed back into the studio, Alice. And I figured after uh, one time you might not have let me back in, but I guess... I've done enough stuff. Always, right. ha- always here, happy to like, have yeah, you back. We'll give one more shot. <laughs> well, don't mess this one up because this not. is strike three. All right. So today's question comes from Avi, who writes: We have two young children, a six-month-old daughter and a two-year-old son. I've opened investment accounts for each. At the moment, she is up eleven percent, and my son is up only four point five percent. Oh boy! I know. She's going to say you always <laughs> like me best, Dada. <laughs> What should parents do to make sure one kid doesn't have more than the other and to avoid them saying later in life, why didn't you invest in this or that, even though that is the way of life? Or is it recommended to have a shared account and just split it somehow when they get older? That's why we asked Jason here, because he's pretty good about doing this with his girls, and I figured he would have a good idea on how to handle this. Well, I appreciate you asking me, because interestingly enough, I've gone through this basic scenario, all, all of sort of went into this question that Avi's asking. Um, number one, first and foremost, a doff of the proverbial cap. I mean, starting investment accounts for your kids at that age. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. Um, I mean, that's phenomenal. Like, we started, um, you know, education accounts, 529s for our kids when they were born. Um, they didn't start buying stocks until they were around, I think, five and seven or five and six and a half or something Slacker. like that. There's about 18 months that separate the two. Yes, I am, but that's all right. <laughs> we'll save that for another podcast. Um, so, initially, what we did do, and what I, I did do is I set their stock account up as a joint account. They were two names on that one account. And actually, what it was, it was under one child's name with me as the custodian, and the other child's name was sort of on there as a secondary name. But what we thought about was that as time goes on, if this account gets to be large enough, you may have some issues there trying to split it uh, when it comes to tax considerations and gifting and all of that. So, what I decided to do um, a couple of years ago was I took that account, I basically split it into two, and and I split their the, the holdings equally down the middle. Because the whole idea really was to get them investing and to talk about these kinds of ideas and being owners of businesses. And so, ultimately, what we've done is they have two accounts. One Per child, and they're basically mirror images of one another, which means their returns are basically equal. And going forward, anytime we make a decision to buy a new stock for them, it's going to be the same stock. So if we decide down the line that we're going to buy them shares of Wayfair, for example, they'll both get shares of Wayfair in their account. Um, and and what that should do in theory is keep any any real uh, disparity there at at a minimum. Um, now with that said. Given the age of the children today, 
and, and given sort of the difference between the returns on the two accounts, I don't know that it's going to be that big of a difference when those kids get old enough to, to take control of those accounts on their own. And ultimately, I mean, any child that's looking at you and saying, well, gee, thanks, Dad. Thanks for setting me up with an investing account and making me all of this money. You know, and the other child just made five percentage points more than I did. You clearly don't love me as much. I think most kids will probably, at that point, uh, have enough maturity to be able to say, "Let's take this for what it is. Let's keep this ball rolling." Um, there are a number of different ways to to do it, but I think ultimately, I would recommend an account for each child. Have yourself as the custodian on that account, and then for me, in order to avoid that problem in the in the future of those of those returns kind of getting out of balance, just Buy the same stock for both accounts. Number one, it just makes it easier. It makes it a little bit more enjoyable for the kids to follow. Um, and occasionally, yeah, you may want to throw a little change up there and maybe give them a share of something that uh, you think they might like for a birthday present or something like that. But but generally speaking, that's how I've handled it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, they're not going to be equal. One kid started early, and let's say they both are going to get the accounts when they turn eighteen. That means one is going to get their money earlier, and the other one's going to get it a year and a half later. And who knows what the market's going to do on either end of that situation? Right. So I don't. I say, Avi, don't stress it so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, it's, it's you're, you're a good dad. It's yeah. an understandable sentiment. It's certainly one to consider. And I mean, I do think a really good question in the should I just have one account or two? I mean, I definitely would recommend going with a separate account for each child. I mean, the only reason why you would possibly combine them into one account would be to save on the transaction cost side of things. But the way it is now, you're not really paying very much money to do these trades anyway, and you're not going to be selling really. This is all about buying and collecting stocks. So, so really, I think the the smartest way to go about it is to give each child their own account, and and then uh, you know discuss the same stocks just as a group, and and uh, you know kind of kind of add those same stocks at the same times, and and you'll avoid that problem down the road. Also, I mean, pretty soon. Sorry, not to belabor the point, but also when these kids get to be a little bit older. They can start making some of the investing decisions themselves, right? Like when do you girl do your girls? They're what ten and they are nine? yeah yeah we'll go eleven and twelve 11 only and on 12. eleven and twelve and so yeah I mean they are to the point now where uh, they they they've shared very very much the same interests obviously me being so close in age um, but there is going to be a point where where I want them to be able to make some of their own calls and maybe uh, sort of. Take their own path, so to speak, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. Ah, oh, you're still pulling pulling the strings. Huh? Well, I like to think that I give them four nice ideas to sort of start deliberating, and then from those four ideas, we can kind of come to a winner there. But but I'm I'm sort of helping them on the quality control side, making sure they're not getting any duds in those uh you know those four four names to consider. Right. Otherwise, you'd be investing in fidget spinners. It's a distinct possibility. We have at least one of those in our house right now that hasn't gotten lost yet. Thank you, Jason, for joining us to answer this question. Thank you. Thanks to Slack for supporting our podcast. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all of your team's communications in one place, making your working life simpler and more productive. Slack allows you to organize your team with real-time messaging, video or voice calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives all in one easy-to-use app. I think it's safe to say that all the cool kids are using it, right, oh, it's Robert? it's true. Very true. This show runs on Slack, as does The Motley Fool itself, and we're, we're pretty cool. <laughs> That's what I tell myself. <laughs> it's, it's definitely cut back on our inner office email considerably, and it makes it a lot easier for us to communicate information with the right fools at the right time. At this point, right now, I'm probably in the middle of six different Slack communicate like conversations with people. So, ah. <laughs> Slack. Slack. We love you. 
Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. That's slack.com. We created as a credit card mess. We spend the money that we don't possess. Our religion is to go and blow it all. So it's shopping every Sunday at the mall. For some people, credit cards are an evil enabler, especially when you consider that the average person who has credit card debt is in for roughly $16,000 on average. But the flip side of that is that 60% of people actually pay off their balances every month. So, credit cards aren't all that bad, right? When managed responsibly, they can be a delightful modern convenience. And joining <laughs> us today is Nathan Hamilton. He's back to talk about some of the most common pitfalls of credit cards and how you can avoid them. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for coming back. Absolutely. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. All right. So, pitfall number one. Yeah, paying cash advance fees. And for people that aren't familiar, it's essentially using your credit card like an ATM. And that doesn't necessarily work with credit card debt too well because what happens is there are two fees that you're going to be hit with. One is a transaction fee. We hate paying ATM fees. For using a cash advance, you're going to be hit with a 3% fee just for accessing cash. And the other part of it is, generally, you're going to incur a sky-high APR interest charge for borrowing that money and taking a cash advance. And if you look at it, it's huge business for banks. I know we've talked before about banks making money off of fees. But cash advance fees, when you look at the grand scheme of things, you've got number one is interest charges. That's where banks earn their money. Second is interchange, which is just a, a processing fee. Number three, $26 billion is what banks earned in 2016 from cash advance wow. fees. It's huge. Wow. So. Why, why is there the difference between the rate on cash advance fees and just a regular old purchase, like if I use it at Amazon or something like that? So, if you look at it from a credit card issuer's perspective, that's not a good budgeting behavior. So, when you're having to tap a high interest credit card to get emergency funds, a credit card issuer is going to say, "Okay, All right, so you're probably not going to be yeah. paying off on time." It's or, a red flag. Yep, yeah, it's gotcha. a red flag. Yeah. So the people who are using cash advances are people who've maybe already maxed out their credit and they need more, or who's why? It's would, more needing cash. Just need it's cash. Just, yeah. So looking at it, your available credit limit to borrow, say for purchases, is going to be higher than what your cash advance limit is. It's just accessing cold hard cash. All right. So pitfall number one: avoid cash advances. All yep. right. Pitfall number two is this is getting into the weeds, but paying on the statement or paying before the statement date versus the due date. And here's why it makes sense: on the statement date, your credit card balances are reported to the credit scoring bureaus, and what happens there is they calculate what's called your credit utilization ratio, which is looking at your debt you're borrowing versus what you have available, and assessing your score based upon that information. So, if you pay on the due date, your balances have already been reported. If you pay before the statement date, you're getting that balance down to zero. A zero balance is being reported to the credit bureaus. Your credit utilization improves. Your FICO score improves. Now, on the previous show, when we had you on to talk about credit scores and how to improve it, you talked about how you pay off your you pay off your bills yep. on the 10th of the month, the 20th of the month and the 11th and the 30th of the month. Is that for yeah. this reason? Yeah, it is. It, it does. It not only does it help me budget and stay within my allotted limit every month, but it essentially means that I'm reporting a zero balance to the credit reporting bureaus and from there my FICO score improves. And maybe you just love paying bills. I'm like, why love do it. it once a month when I can yeah. do it three times I a month? I love spending and paying bills. It's my favorite <laughs> thing. <laughs> you are I'm, I'm going to assume you are an organized person. 
I uh, am. I have seen your desk, or yes. what would what would people might consider a desk, but it's really Minimalist. just a table. It's very, it's There's very... like nothing on it. <laughs> you like, would not know that, that someone actually yes. uses that desk because yes. it's yes. so clean. Yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> All right, what is the third pitfall for people to avoid when it comes to credit cards? So this is one you got to look at the fine print when you're when you're either applying for a credit card or um, using them, but it's missing the balance transfer period for the promotional APR. Yeah. So for balance transfers, some cards will be lenient and say you can transfer the balance anytime. We'll give you the zero percent APR for 15 months. Others will say you can only do so within this 60-day period from account opening. A bunch of legal disclaimer stuff in italics, small font that you have to abide by to get that zero percent introductory APR. So it's just paying attention to the details and don't fall into that pitfall because uh, I would say if you look at balance transfer cards, I'd say. Just a random guess. Half of them have these random requirements on them. All right, now some of the requirements, at least it used to be. I haven't paid attention as much lately, but you had to also pay everything exactly on time. So if you did the balance transfer and then you missed a payment, then you you basically lost that teaser rate. Yeah, I don't know how it works now, but I know there's various legislation in place that came about after the financial crisis that was more of an advocate for. The, the consumer, and they remove some of those stricter regulations. But I don't know what the exact um, the exact plan is right now. But yeah, I definitely want to look at it because not only if you miss a payment, you're hurting your FICO score. Yeah, and, and probably anytime you're doing a lot of credit card jujitsu, you probably <laughs> want to read all the fine print just as closely yeah. as possible. The funny thing you look at when you're um, when you're reviewing all the credit card details is how much legal language there is in there qualifying balance transfers for yeah. qualifying new card holders for promo period asterisk you know there there are all those details but thankfully they're presented in a standardized format that is pretty easy to understand all right what is the fourth and final pitfall that you suggest people avoid when it comes to using credit cards so this is going to sound like an odd one but i recently learned this based on some research i came across in the market but it's paying the annual fee so some credit cards you get away with a $0 annual fee. There's no there's no charge to essentially have the card. Other ones charge an annual fee. But if you call up your credit card company, they're pretty willing to to waive that fee if you're a good card holder. Yeah. And the research I came across of 80% of people requesting a fee waiver for their annual fee were granted it. Oh. So it's not a small huh. number. Yeah. And I haven't done it before, but I I sure as hell know that right now. I'm going to be calling up any card companies that Let's I have right now on the podcast. What, what are typical annual, like, what are some of the lower versus the higher annual fees that you've encountered in your research? So, I would say for a premier card, you're going to be several hundred dollars. Oh, that's there no are some joke, cards, yeah, yeah $450, $550 based upon some cards that are on the market now. For more consumer everyday cards, they run anywhere from 50 to under 100 bucks. Yeah, so getting it waived, that's well, not a bad I mean, let's yeah. take yourself out to dinner money. Just like I don't like paying bills, nobody likes paying fees. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so if you, our listeners, want to learn more about managing your credit better, you can head to fool.com slash credit cards. We also have lists like which credit cards are the best for travel rewards or cash back, or if you want to move over some of those big balances. Yep. We're not judging. We'll find you some good deals with <laughs> credit cards with zero percent APR. But again, read the fine print. Nathan, thank you for joining us again. Uh, this has been fun, and thank I you. learned a lot. So have I. Great. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a big deal when you learn a lot, <laughs> <laughs> Mister Smarty Money Pants. <laughs>
4th of July, everybody. Woohoo! I'm sure you're all at your barbecue, um, roasting hot dogs and listening to our listening podcast. Listening to our podcast and Be quiet, everybody. It's July 4th. Let's listen to this podcast. Hey, kids, Answers is on. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so it is July 4th, so Brocamp said, I've got an amazing idea for a July 4th related segment. And I said, cool, let's do it. And But I, know nothing, I don't know anything about it, so you just need to run with it. <laughs> ben yes. Franklin, go. Well, I don't know about amazing. I don't want to oversell it. But yeah, so July 4th, a time when we celebrate the birth of America and the memories of our founding fathers and mothers, of course. And there's hardly a father more founding than Benjamin Franklin. So I, I, he was an inventor, an investor, ambassador, postmaster, printer. He kind of did it all. So it may not be a surprise that he actually did a pretty good job of estate planning as well. So let's look at the last will and testament of Benjamin Franklin to see if there are any lessons for us today. Are you ready? I couldn't be more ready, bro. <laughs> so the first one is lesson number one don't give relatives what they don't deserve. Yes. Yeah, so, in researching about this, the very first thing in his will is that he basically says to his son, William Franklin, You're not getting very much. And one thing I didn't know about was that Franklin's son actually supported the British during the Revolutionary War huh. and spent a lot of the war in prison. And then he eventually got out and fled to London. Wow. So, they obviously had a difficult relationship. Talk about rebelling against yes. your parents. So they had a bit, they had a bit of a, a makeup time later on in life. I think they met one more time before Franklin passed away in, in 1790. But basically, in the will, he said to my son, you get a little land in Nova Scotia. There's a loan that you have out that I'm going to forgive. But otherwise, that's it. You're not getting anything that's in the country that you wanted to deprive me of. So, wow. <laughs> you didn't get anything. So, yeah, that's number one. Number two, make relatives do things. Yeah, so there were a few people that owed Frank, lots of people actually owed Franklin a lot of money. Um, and in his will, in a couple of instances, he said, I'll forgive the loan if you do something. So, for his grandson, he said, I'll forgive the loan if you get married. And Franklin actually had a very complicated relationship with slavery earlier in life. He had slaves. It, it, at points in his life, he had owned seven slaves. But as he got older, he became an abolitionist. So to his son-in-law, he said, I will forgive a loan if you free your slave, Bob, when I pass oh, away. Bob. Bob, yes. So, so there are... Um, some restrictions on this. So in my in my various readings about estate planning, there are limits on what you can make people do <laughs> to get to get the money that you want to leave them. But you can put conditions on what people have to do in order to inherit something. Number three, be specific about specific items. Yes. Yeah, so you know your will shouldn't just be I divide everything equally among my four kids. You should name specific things. So Franklin did several had several examples of this, but one of those was he had received a crabtree walking stick from a woman in France that he willed to his great friend and friend of mankind, General Washington. So he gave this cane to General Washington. Um, it is now at the Smithsonian. That's some cane. That is some cane. And after when, when Washington got it, um, he sent a letter to Franklin's executor saying, I received this legacy with pleasing sensations and a grateful heart. <laughs> um, and also, he had a um, picture of the King of France encrusted with diamonds. Whoa. So he left it to his daughter, 
but said that she could not form any of those diamonds into ornaments, either for herself or daughters, and thereby introduce or countenance the expensive, vain, and useless fashion of wearing jewels in this country. <laughs> so I guess Franklin was not a fan of jewelry. So she didn't do that. Instead, they just sold the diamonds and went on a trip to Europe after Franklin passed away. And buy some better jewelry. <laughs> buy some better jewelry, exactly. Uh, so number four. Bequeathing stocks can be the gifts that keep on giving. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that he did in his will was that he said that he wanted to support his sister. And he did that by saying all the dividends and interest that he will get from his 12 shares in the Bank of North America, which I would love to research and see whatever became of yeah, those shares, will then support his sister. And then when the sister passed away, the money would go to his daughter as, quote, her private pocket money, which I thought was nice. <laughs> it was funny. Franklin uh, left something specifically to his daughter, but mentioned in his will that this is no disrespect to his son-in-law. He just wanted to make sure, that, I guess, that his daughter got some things that she could do whatever she oh, wanted. Oh, I like but, that. Yeah. So, but this is, I mean, we often think about stocks for the long run, and then we think of them for retirement. But if you do have a portion of your portfolio that you're going to leave to the next generation, it's a good way to think about how you want that money to be used. Both could be for someone who's then you want to support, but then what happens to it after that. And can you bequeath stock to someone and say, you are not allowed to sell this stock for 10 years? So if you want to have complete control over what happens to money or specific investments, it's better to put that in the trust. And then the trustee is the person who makes the investment decisions or the disbursement decisions. All right, number five, help others as you were helped. Yes, so Franklin was born in Boston back when it was the biggest city in America at 12,000 inhabitants. Um, by the, he was the 15th of 17 children. Wow. And I think by, it was by age 12, he was apprenticed to his brother to be a printer. His brother was basically a tyrant, is the way that mm. Ben Franklin put it. So he ran away from Boston to Philadelphia, which was illegal because once you're indentured to someone, you got to fill your obligation. But he started his own printer shop with money that he borrowed from friends. Hmm. And Franklin put in his will that I want to be basically, I want to be able to do that for other what he called artificers, but basically craftsmen, tradesmen. I want to set up a way that people could get a loan if they need it. So what he did was, and this was really the story that got me most interested in his will, he set aside. 2,000 pounds, which in today's money roughly would be about $2 million, 1,000 pounds to Philadelphia, because that's where he ran away to, 1,000 pounds to Boston, because that's where he was born. And the money was set up so that any artificer who was married under the age of 25 could borrow money for 10 years at 5% interest, but you did have to get two references as to your moral character <laughs> to get the money. Do we know what happened to the money? Like, Do we know, did it spawn any amazing... And then that company went on to become... Yes, Microsoft! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know that yet, but that's a very interesting question. I'll have to look into that. Okay. Basically, besides wanting to give people a leg up like he had, he also it put in his will, I have considered that among artisans, good apprentices are most likely to make good citizens. Oh. Yeah. All right, next one. This is number six. Think really long term. Okay, so in his will, he was specific about how long this money would be lent out. He calculated, first of all, he wanted money to be lent out that way for 100 years. And then he calculated, at 5% interest, 1,000 pounds after 100 years would turn into 131,000 pounds. At that point, 
the cities could spend 100,000 pounds, but then the other 31,000 would be lent out for another 100 years to people. Oh, wow. So after the first 100 years, then the cities could use the money for however they determined. Boston actually had more freedom. They could choose it for whatever they wanted to. He put in his will. Fortifications, bridges, aqueducts, baths, whatever they wanted to spend the money on. He was very specific about Philadelphia and that after the first 100 years, they should look at improving their plumbing, essentially, <laughs> if, if it hadn't been improved by then at that point. All right. And number seven, appoint good managers. Yes. So, unfortunately, his money did not grow as quickly as he had calculated, partially because the whole apprentice system kind of went away in America, right? So, there weren't as many people to be lending the money to. Um, so, the money didn't grow as much as he wanted. But still, by the time 1990 rolled around, so that's 200 years after he died, Boston's money was worth about $5 million. Philadelphia's just $2 million. Oh. Part of that was Boston, at some point, said, okay, we can't lend this money out, so we're going to start putting it in the stock market. And that's part of why their money grew more. So, he was not very specific in his will about who should manage the money or how the decisions should be made. So, if you want to have a certain amount of control over how money is invested, it's a pretty good idea to put that in your will or in your trust. Number eight, make a lasting difference. Right. So, despite the fact that his money did not grow quite as much as he thought it would, it still had a lasting legacy. And, and this is where there's all kinds of information, some of it frankly, kind of conflicting about what happened to the money. But in 1990, when uh, Philadelphia and Boston had the money, at that point, it was supposed to be split between those cities and their states. So there was a little bit of fighting about who would get the money and what would happen to the money. Um, but in the end, it still did all kinds of good things. So, if you've ever been to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, the On-Hand Science Museum, that's part of the legacy. Um, they are still giving out loans to people who need it for really? school. Oh, yep. wow. um, the Franklin Union, which is a technical school in Boston, was built with part of Franklin's money. So, here we are now, well beyond 200 years when Benjamin Franklin died, and people are still benefiting from his will and testament. Wow. All right, and the last thing that you can learn from Ben Franklin's will is to make your burial wishes known. Yeah, I just thought it was so funny. Like He's such a... Um, interesting guy. He was a very articulate fellow, and but in his will, he was very pretty plain spoken about what he wanted. So he, he said, "I would have my body buried with as little expense or ceremony as may be." Which, if you know his penny penny saved is a penny earned, then you not, you're not surprised that he didn't want a whole lot of money spent on mm-hmm. his burial. He said, "I wish to be buried by the side of my wife, if it may be, and that a marble stone to be made by Chambers, which was a company that made these things, six feet long, four feet wide, plain with only a small molding, round upper edge, and this inscription, Benjamin and Deborah Franklin. Did you check? Did that actually happen? Yeah. But I think, if I remember correctly, something like 20,000 people came to his funeral. So, there was a little bit of ceremony involved. So, there you have it. I was just about to say, so there you have it. (laughs) Some outstanding estate planning from an outstanding American. More than 200 years old, Yep. this, this uh, advice has lasted. Uh, well, happy July 4, everybody. Hopefully, you're declaring financial independence uh, because of this Answers podcast, too. <laughs> yes. And enjoy your day. Worry about the estate planning tomorrow. 
right. Well, that's the show. I want to thank Nathan for coming by again. And I want to thank Bro for doing his homework assignment. Like, that was a serious <laughs> report there. Nice thank work. You. I enjoyed that. Thank you, Mrs. Southwick. <laughs> Gold star. <laughs> Class. Why can't you all be like Mr. Bro Camp here? Uh, all right. So, the show is edited patriotically by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Feel free to drop us a line, say hi. Also, don't forget to keep sending in those postcards because I love them so much. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, uh, second floor, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Everyone's going to have our address memorized just like we have 3030 memorized, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.